Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. The new tools that a metaverse can bring allows you to create more immersive content. Companies are beginning to sell less oil, more electrons. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The supply chain breakdown is combining with labor shortages. Will Eastern manufacturers continue to dominate or will there be a renewed interest in Western manufacturers? Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, over the next hour, we are going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. I'm Paul Sweeney. Alex Steele is off today. Coming up, we'll take a look at the long-term growth rates for Lululemon. Plus, how will small caps weather the impending rate hike storm? But first, let's take a look at a product that Bloomberg Intelligence puts out periodically throughout the year, which is their focus ideas, uh, some of the ideas that they really have a high conviction in. And we need to figure out what those names are and what the catalysts are. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg Intelligence European equity strategist Tim Craighead. Tim, tell us what the BI focus ideas are. How do you come up with them and, and kind of what's the goal here? I tell you, this is, I think, a real franchise of, of Bloomberg Intelligence that we've developed the last couple of years. Our focus ideas are high conviction calls that our analysts feel the market just doesn't get. And we're really zoned in on a fundamental view number one. And number two, there's got to be catalysts ahead that can change the market's mentality on this call. We're coming up on first quarter earnings here. Is that a catalyst? The reporting period absolutely will be. And, you know, there's a handful that we're looking at that might be able to continue to really move ahead with earnings. And, you know, we're also quite cognizant that there's margin risk issues in the upcoming reporting period. Yeah, we've heard that from Gina Martin-Adams and, and, and you and talking about the margin risk here as we deal with this inflation. One of your focus ideas, I'm looking at your most recent report, is Porsche. You know, that could be a catalyst here for VW. What's the story there? Yeah, I tell you, this, this one's good. We all like fast cars. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the focus idea on VW is about their ability over the coming 12 to 18 months to take the crown in electric vehicles. Part of that is the technology that's driving that segment for VW, and that's really coming from Porsche. And to help recognize that value and, frankly, take advantage of it, we think that Porsche's IPO is imminent, um, and it could be announced as we get into the summer months. And you know, that's one of these reasons why we really focused on that idea in particular at this point. 
All right, so moving on from the car biz, energy's been a really good play for investors. It was so out of favor for so long when prices were low, but given the big move in oil over the last uh, several months, it's been a nice play. What's your energy call here? Well, it's one of these things where there are a number of ideas that come up here. One in particular is Equinor. Okay. Um, Norwegian-based, huge supplier of natural gas to Europe, uh, mm -hmm. number two behind Gazprom. And clearly with a Russian sanction in place, that's been able to really accelerate the opportunity for Equinor. And you know this is one of those companies we would expect good things in the upcoming earnings reporting period. You're based in London, Tim, and I know we, uh, you know, several months ago, uh, Europe and uh, the UK in particular had a real problem with natural gas shortages. What's the state of the market these days? Yeah, I mean, it continues to be the case. There are there are markets, countries, in particular Germany and Italy, that get a lot of gas, natural gas, from Russia. Yep. And, you know, it, there's all sorts of repercussions of what will transpire from the sanctions. You know, part could be you start using more coal. A big part of this, we think, is going to be the push, a, a further incentive to go to clean energy sources. Vestas is another one of our focus ideas right now that I think is very timely. You know, the clean energy stocks that all had a big move. Yep early in the pandemic period, and they kind of got overhyped and have come back down from a stock perspective, Vestas, we think, is in front of what could be a renewed tailwind, sorry for the pun, yep. <laughs> um, with their wind turbine business. Really interesting company with a big opportunity in front of them. All right, let's talk healthcare. You know, I think about the big pharma stocks. We talk to Sam Fazelli all the time about, you know, obviously the pandemic and how the big pharma companies have thankfully really come to the rescue with some great vaccines. Is there any play here? I'm looking at Pfizer. I guess that was kind of the pandemic play. Is there another call here for Pfizer? Yeah, you know, this is really interesting, Paul, because we, we had an early focus idea on Pfizer because of vaccines, right. that there was an upside opportunity for consensus estimates. We sort of cashed that in, if you will. Okay. But we now have another one on Pfizer, and that is the shift with their opportunity on the pill the antiviral pill, Prilosic. Pri uh, and there, every $10 billion in revenue, and the estimates are not that big right now, is another dollar in earnings. And we think that the market just misses the opportunity as you go out this year and into next. The flip side of that is Moderna and BioNTech, right. where we think consensus estimates, if you look at the orders that consensus is implying for just vaccines for those guys, actually is really dependent on a big, huge campaign for fourth shots, a, 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 another booster. And you know, evidence so far suggests you know, you're going to have it selectively, but you're not going to have a massive campaign. So we think there's disappointment opportunity for Moderna and BioNTech. So a focus idea can be a short idea. It absolutely can okay. be on the negative side. Okay. So yeah, I, it, we just here in the States got the... Uh, I guess the the CDC is suggesting folks over 50 get a booster shot, but it doesn't seem to have much momentum at the moment. Yeah. Maybe well, just because the cases and, are you know, still waning. And I know you talk to Sam Vizelli all the time. Yep. Um, you know, the, the evidence coming out of Israel, which has been on the forefront all along, is really interesting on the fourth shot take up that it's much less across the board. And we think that's probably likely elsewhere. All right, that's good stuff. Tim Craighead, Bloomberg Intelligence, European equity strategist. Coming up on the program, the outlook for U.S. investment-grade corporate credit. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining. I'm Paul Sweeney. Alex Steele is off today. Well, the first quarter for the corporate bond market was brutal. What's the outlook for the rest of the year? For that, we welcome Noel Habert. Uh, he is our credit director of research for all things credit for Bloomberg Intelligence. Noel, let's just look back a little bit here. How tough was that first quarter in the corporate bond market? Uh, near historically tough. It's <laughs> really yep. through investment grade. So, I mean, you'd have to go back to about 1980 before you would find a comparable year in terms of losses for the investment grade side of the market, obviously on higher rates through the Treasury market as well as wider spread. And high yield itself, you know, lost almost 5%, which, you know, you don't have to go quite back uh, 40 years, but you'd have to go back a decade or so to sort of find that kind of pain. So, it was historically bad. All right. So, What's the outlook for the remainder of the year? Can these uh, credit investors claw some of that back? Uh, probably not. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not to be overly glib about it, but I think, I mean, the reality is, is you know, you still have uh, across both of them, right? I mean, if you look at sort of where we're sitting with inflation, as well as the fact that we're at the very, very beginning stages of a tightening monetary policy cycle, you know, we are trading at spread levels on the one hand, as well as absolute yield levels that are well below the prevailing rate of inflation. So if you think about the historic relationship, even if, you know, you kind of go with the consensus that inflation sort of starts to cool off as we move into year end, we're still probably trading on both fronts about 200 basis points or 2% uh, below in terms of yields, in terms of where we should be. And if you sort of multiply that through for each of them, you could be looking at additional losses sort of in the mid-single digits for investment grade and then sort of low to mid-single digits for high yield. So what are corporate bond investors doing? How are they positioning themselves? Uh, very carefully. Yeah. Uh, I just, it really depends, right? Because a lot of them, uh, on the investment grade side, you really don't have an option, right? Because you're typically pension or institutional money, so you're just investing. You're just trying to do a little bit better than the index because that's sort of the benchmark against what you're comparing. So if the index loses 12% and you lose 11.5%, you look like a winner. I think more broadly speaking, people that have a little bit more discretion, you know, you're being very careful in terms of how you're managing your duration profile. So there are parts of the curve. If you think about sort of the price action that we got in the first quarter, you know, the front end of the Treasury curve and the spread curve for corporates really steepened out quite a bit or really rose quite a bit. And that actually, you know, a lot of the damage there looks to be done. So you could maybe do a little bit better being shorter dated there. And then in high yield, because you tend to be a little bit more esoteric, it's really just about name and sector selection. So you can, you know, not to say you're necessarily going to deliver returns that way or positive returns, but you could do, you know, certainly less worse than the broader index. So if I'm a corporate bond investor, do I think about sector specifics or do I just say, you know, I'm just trying to manage my duration and, and, and try to minimize yep. the pain? Yeah, so, I mean, again, I think that's a little bit, you know, sort of a split between, you know, who typically invests in investment grade versus who invests in high yield. So, in high yield, you definitely get that gain a little bit. You know, so, you know, for example, if you're in energy in the first quarter because of where oil went because of all the geopolitical yep. tensions and everything, you, you didn't do great, but you did certainly a lot less bad than everybody else. Investment grade, you know, you tend to, again, sort of be index invested as opposed to a little bit more discretion there. 
that said, you do have people that have some flexible mandates, what you know, we call in the lingo of core plus, so index plus, you know, some weightings towards wherever you want to be from a sector or duration exposure. And again, it, that helps sort of take some of the edge off if you do it well, but it's not necessarily a complete solution yeah. to it. So, How about on the new issue side? I mean, it's been such a great market for issuers here. And I even remember just kind of the beginning of the pandemic, you know, a couple of years ago, corporate debt issuance was just exploding as people tried to shore up their balance sheet in front of, you know, this uncertainty of the pandemic. As rates now start to rise, what's the outlook for new issuance? Well, I think in high yield, you're still probably okay. So, you know, if you think about 2020, which is obviously the big explosive year that you're referencing when we got almost, you know, 1.9 trillion. Wow in total issuance. And then last year, we still got a, you know, 1.4, which was still a pretty robust year for investment grade. We're still looking for, you know, a little bit in the context of 1.2 trillion this year. And even year to date through 1Q, they were right on target with where they were a year ago. The interesting thing about investment grade is it's really, you know, it depends on where you're issuing. So if you look at the front end of the curve, so people that would issue in the, say, inside of 10 years, that kind of paper is a lot more expensive than it has been in most recent years. Whereas the longer dated stuff, you know, 10 years and out, so your 20 and 30 year issues, you know, historically that paper is still relatively attractively priced uh, because it's so much of the rates pressure and the spread pressure has been in the front end. So you're still issuing at the long end, you know, sort of in the four, four and a half neighborhood, which is still pretty competitive. So I think for issuers and investment grade, that's still pretty compelling. High yield, uh, you know, issuance there is down pretty sharply, you know, on the year, about 70% relative to last year. Uh, both as investors sort of are preferring leveraged loans because they get a little bit of inflation protection with the floating rate, as well as the function of, you know, realistically, companies have been very aggressive borrowing in the most recent years. Last year, a little bit over, you know, half a trillion there. So they're kind of flush with cash. And the reality is, is there's no maturity schedule to speak of. So they can kind of sit back and wait on it a little bit. You mentioned the leveraged loan business. Talk to us about that business. I think a lot of folks are not as you know well-versed in the leverage loan business as maybe the investment grade or the high-yield market. Yeah, no, and that's certainly true because it, it certainly gets issued and syndicated and trades in a very different way. And I think, so I, I guess sort of the quick and dirty, right, is you kind of go into leverage loans for two reasons. One, because you get a little bit of floating rate protection or a little bit of inflation protection on the one hand, and typically you get security, right? So it tends to be a way to sort of play the, the market a little bit more defensively. Now you're giving up liquidity on the other hand. Yeah. Uh, so that's your big trade-off. And, you know, you so you end up sort of with some repricing risk and stuff like that. But in the last few years, what we've seen is a lot of strength in the collateralized loan obligation market or the CLO market, which has really sort of kept a, a pretty consistent bid for the amount of paper outstanding. And now, obviously, it's been sort of the growth area because people, again, sort of want to play defensive. They're looking at a potentially 8% plus CPI print this month and going, gee, I don't wow. know that I yep. want to just be in a static maturity. If I'm an issuer, do I consider the leverage loan market if I can't really get access to the high yield market? Yes, I guess is sort of, I think you kind of go where uh, the investors are, right? So if lenders are going to give you more favorable rates to kind of go into leverage loan space, you do that if you kind of have to. I think Typically, you're going to prefer the corporate space because you can typically do that on an unsecured basis, so you're not tying up collateral, uh, yep. and it gives you a little bit more flexibility. Loans tend to be you know, a secondary objective, again, unless, of course, that's sort of where all the investors are, and you can kind of get much more attractive margins spread on your product there. 
Good stuff there, Noel. That's Noel Habert, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Director of Credit Research. Coming up on the program, Lululemon bets on shoes. The athletic wear retailer aims to fill a white space in the footwear business. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's get stock specific here, and we can do that with our friends at Bloomberg Intelligence, Lululemon Athletica. I'm looking at the stock here. LULU is the symbol. It's got a market cap of about $48 billion, off about 3% year to date. But let's get the story here, and we'll bring in Bloomberg Intelligence senior retail analyst Poonam Goyle. So, Poonam, Lululemon is certainly a brand well, well known by many folks out there. What's the investment call? Yeah, you know, Lululemon, as everyone knows for its apparel, is now going into shoes, which is a new territory for them. And we think the shoe opportunity could be a billion dollars, just like it was for Under Armour, if you recall, years ago when they had stepped into shoes from apparel. Um, you know, as they launch shoes, which are now out for women, running shoes, that is, they have been criticized um, for the lower margin category that it is. So when you think of margins for apparel, they're about closer to 58, 60 percent. 
But when you think of shoes, they're right under 50%. Ah, So it is margin dilutive. And I think that's where the criticism is. We ran the numbers. We don't think it's that dilutive. If they grow to a billion dollars in sales, in 10 years that is, um, and their sales for the current business, X shoes, grows at a double-digit clip still, we, the detriment to margin is still less than 50 basis points based on our analysis. What's the focus here for Lululemon? Like, who's the target audience for the shoes? Is it the athletic uh, shoe market? Is it more the leisure shoe market? Yeah, it's the performance shoer market. So okay. they are competing head-to-head with Nike, Adidas for performance shoes. But that said, um, the way they're launching the shoe business is interesting. They're going after women's first. So the shoes that are out right now, cater to the woman audience, which is their core customer. And next year, they'll introduce the line to men. So when you think about Nike and Adidas, you know, traditionally for decades, they've really catered to the male customer. And yes, they've had women's shoes, but it's technically just been maybe, you know, a shoe that was crafted for men, but now they'll add it in the pink color (laughs) and in the smaller size. They've also changed the way they do business, but they don't have the lion's share of the women's market like they do for men. So Lululemon does have an opportunity to kind of go into that market and try to grab share. Yeah, it's interesting. You think about some of the, you know, the big brand advertisers out there that have just worked so hard over decades to build their brands. And a lot of them are the shoe companies. And I would make, I would think that would be, make it very difficult for Lululemon uh, to break into. What, what do you think is going to be their competitive advantage? Um, that they have the current market, right? So they already have the active wear woman customer. She's in there shopping for leggings, for sweatshirts, for sports bras. She's already in their stores. Now she just has to cross over into shopping footwear. And I can tell you from our early channel checks online, some of these shoes are already sold out. So they are being very well received. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So how about the men? Because, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, Nike and some of the other athletic shoe companies really focusing on the male category. Lululemon, on the other hand, uh, has built its brand value in the with women. How are they going to go after the male customer? So they, they are building a men's business as well. So the focus for the last three years, and they have an analyst day coming up in, in the next few weeks, they're going to talk about growing men's further. And there is a men's following, but it's just not as strong as women's. Next year, when they launch men's, hopefully they'll have some more data to support the launch for men's. But we do think it's going to be a little harder for them to, you know, get a male shopper moving away from their Nikes to a Lululemon uh, for performance, that is. You know, you, you look at the playbook for, again, the Nikes and the Adidas of the world, and they've relied upon getting endorsements by leading professional athletes. Is that a strategy we might see from Lululemon? They, they could go ahead and do that as well. But keep in mind that Lululemon doesn't necessarily have the budget that a Nike would have. Okay. Nike is a $30 billion company in terms of top line greater than that, and Lululemon $6 billion. So what's the catalyst here for getting into this market? Again, it just seems super competitive. Um, and you talked about c- kind of some of the margin challenges. Is this just trying to extend the brand value, the brand of Lululemon into another vertical? Yeah, I think it's the natural adjacent expansion category. So they have apparel, they have accessories. They did test shoes before with APL through a partnership, and that did really well. So I think since that point, they've been just trying to craft a line of their own. And now finally in 2022, they were able to launch it through women's. It's shoes and apparel go hand in hand. So it's just crossing the customer over into an adjacent category. And if you do bring loyal customers into the stores, and they can maybe cross shop from footwear into apparel or apparel into footwear. You know, I'm looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal, the financial analysis, and it's got some of the forecasts from the street. 
looking at you know 2023, their fiscal year January 2023, 20% top line growth and fiscal 24, 14% top line growth. That's pretty darn good. What's driving that? It's the demand for activewear. I mean, we all lived through the pandemic, right? There's yeah. more yoga pants in everyone's <laughs> closets than there ever were before. And that trend continues. Even though we're returning to work, there's a balance now. And the demand for activewear just continues to grow. Yep. Interesting stuff. Lululemon is the call there. Uh, Poonam, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Poonam Goyle, Bloomberg Intelligence Retail Analyst. Coming up on the program, the Russell 2000 Inflation Playbook. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Paul Sweeney. Alex Steele is off today. All right, let's talk stocks. Tough first quarter, a lot of volatility, but a lot of folks are saying, should I be looking at small cap stocks? Let's take a look at that today. I'm joined by Bloomberg Intelligence equity strategist, Michael Casper. Michael, you know, give me the call for small cap stocks because I've just been sticking around with my big cap tech names for the last decade and they've done pretty well for me. Talk to me about small cap stocks. Well, the valuations are certainly attractive uh, at this point in time. They're about 2.1 standard deviations below normal on a relative basis to large cap. Um, you know, about matching the August 2020 lows right before small cap started to rip uh, into the end of the year and into March 2021. Um, so valuations is certainly a story there. Additionally, there's some uh, some rate headwinds or tailwinds, depending on how yep. you look at it. If you look at it in terms of uh, duration, which is a, a measure that we commonly use and uh, I can define maybe a little bit later. Um, if you look at it in terms of duration, small caps uh, are significantly lower duration than large caps, meaning that the time it takes to be paid back your initial investment in a small in your median small cap company is significantly less than your large cap company, um, meaning that there's less rate risk there. Um, so maybe that's a bit of a, a tailwind, especially going into this this rate hike cycle that could be pretty aggressive. All right. So, you know, having talking spoken to you and Gina Martin Adams in the past, you've been telling me to focus on margins because and with the inflation we're seeing out there, a lot of companies, a lot of industries are and will continue to face some margin pressure due to inflation. Give us a sense of how the small cap stocks deal with that issue. Yeah, so so small cap stocks, you know, they're like any other stocks. Uh, they're going to face some margin headwind. Uh, the the corollary that we're really looking at right now is is this more of kind of a 2011 situation where uh, stocks have hit their initial recovery. Inflation is is starting to uh, decouple from GDP growth a little bit. Um, and, and is going to remain a little bit high. And in that case, uh, small cap margins took about a 60 basis point hit. Um, and in fact, whenever you look at uh, where CPI is above 3% persistently, it's about a 20 basis point hit on average uh, to year ahead margins. So uh, there's not much difference there. Where the difference is, is that the, the stocks tend to track inflation, or at least the stock price tends to track inflation a little bit closer than large cap stocks. And the reasoning for that is just the commodity sensitives within the small cap index. All right. So I'm learning a new thing, a new term today, duration. That is how long it would take to be paid back a company's market cap based on forecast of cash flow. Okay. I got that. What sectors screen well for you guys in terms of that duration measurement? Uh, so financials is, is the one that stands out. Uh, financials in both large caps and small caps is the lowest duration sector. 
um, in the respective indices. On the flip side, uh, in small caps, it's a little bit interesting. It looks like energy's gotten a little bit extended here. Um, energy is actually the highest duration uh, in the Russell 2000, whereas in large caps, it's tech and healthcare. Tech and healthcare, of course, are, are second and third uh, longest duration within the Russell 2000, meaning that they have uh, the second and third most rate risk. Yeah, I mean, the energy stocks have just been ripping, obviously, because we've got you know WTI crude oil above $100. From your perspective, is, is the energy play kind of played out? Uh, it's it's a little overbought okay. in, in in my estimation. I don't know that it's necessarily played out. If we do get persistently high inflation, it's going to be commodity driven, meaning that energy and materials um, would tend to outperform. And in fact, that's where our sector scorecard in the small cap space stands right now with energy and materials at the top. All right. One of the concerns I have with small cap stocks is just kind of the balance sheet and the capital structure and well, if I've got interest rates rising and some of these guys have a variable rate debt, that's a problem. How do you think about the balance sheets for a lot of these small cap names in a rising interest rate environment? Yeah, so so that goes hand in hand with leverage, and it's something that I get a lot of client questions on. Um, small caps are significantly higher leverage than large caps, um, to the tune about a, of about 130% uh, debt to equity ratio. But I'm not that concerned about leverage at the moment. I mean, if you look at the dot plot, it suggests that rates should finish the year at about 1.9%, significantly lower than last cycle's highs, significantly lower than previous cycle's highs. Additionally, you've got high-yield OAS, which right now is sitting around 315 OAS, OAS? option-adjusted option spreads. Oh, boy. Uh, so the, the, uh, the uh, amount you have to pay over the 10-year basically, okay. um, on high-yield debt. And that, that's how small comp companies gauge their funding costs. And those those are pretty low in the context of history. In fact, about as low as the last cycle. So I think rolling debt and, and kind of acquiring new debt shouldn't be that much of an issue here, and we should instead be looking at duration. Uh, Michael Casper, Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Strategist. Thanks so much. All right, let's turn to financial services. I'm going to turn to digital financial service, because I think over the pandemic, a lot of us, if I'm uh, any representation, doing a lot more digital banking, doing a lot more banking on my phone. And one of the new names is NewBank. And we want to talk about that. Today, we're going to do that with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financials Analyst, Diksha Guerra. Diksha, give us uh, your overview of what NewBank is and kind of where they're trying to go with their business. Yeah. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. So let me say this, like, let me highlight the three most remarkable things about this bank. Go for it. So New Bank has gotten to a 48.1 million user base in just a few years. Uh, and that number basically exceeded Bank of America's total until earlier this year, when the three trillion mega bank caught up. And these are not notional customers. About 75% of them are actually monthly active customers, meaning three-fourths of these customers actually generated revenue for the bank in the past month. And it has achieved this without expanding globally. This is primarily Brazil and a little bit of expansion in Colombia and Mexico. So okay. that's one. Secondly, the customer base has not come by throwing freebies and discounts and, you know, all the sorts of gimmicks that we've seen. And, and this is something I've noticed in Asia Tech and Fintechs. Um, the stickiness of this kind of client base that comes for freebies can be doubtful, you know. So Newbank's customer acquisition cost is, if not the lowest, uh, among the lowest for the fintechs and banks globally. It's a mere $5 per customer. And thirdly, I mean, even with that kind of size, 
it's among the few high-growth fintech names that has actually turned profitable in the largest market, that is Brazil. So I think, to sum it all up, Newbank essentially looks like the first and uh, primary leader within the neobank space, and we've not had a lot of companies come to market as standalone entities, and I think this will kind of lay the foundation for that segment to grow globally. All right, so Newbank, it's a digital bank primarily in Brazil. Talk to us about just kind of the digital banking business in Brazil, in Latin America. I understand that, uh, you know, it's a younger population, maybe more engaged with digital, uh, different products and services. Just talk to us about the market. So digital banking, I think globally has picked up a fair bit uh, over the last several years. And COVID definitely was a big kicker for that, right? A lot of people who couldn't go to physical branches actually started trying out some of these apps uh, and some of the digital banking solutions. And that's how, like, we've seen, even for New Bank, for that matter, like, the customer base has grown from 10 million to 48 million in just between 2019 and 2021. So that kind of speaks to you about, you know, what are the, the, I mean, the basic offerings of financial services. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, oh, yeah, I need to go to a bank branch today. I mean, that's definitely not something people enjoy doing, and it kind of takes up um, time and effort. And, and I think the financial services, among all other industries, has been among the laggards in terms of, you know, uh, just focusing on the customer, really. So so within the Brazil landscape, if you were to think about it, I mean, definitely there's a younger population base, but I think it's it goes much beyond that. So it's not just the millennials and the Gen Zs that they're targeting. I think it's generally the underserved segment uh, and that can count to uh, financial inclusion, like people who do not qualify for bank accounts. And you'd be surprised to know that, Paul. P- uh, banks actually charge you a fee for maintaining uh, a deposit account, and that's unheard of yep. for an emerging market. All right, talk to us about um, just kind of the top line. I'm looking at the FA function, which is one of my favorite functions, financial analysis. And for calendar year 22, consensus revenue estimates over 100% and even 50% next year what's the driver of that growth? So there are multiple drivers. And I mean, um, I've been highlighting some of the risks for the general banking system because this is a tough year for Brazil. We are going into an election year, and this is one of the most tightly contested elections in the history of Brazil. Yep. We've seen rates go up by 900 basis points. Economic growth is faltering. Like There is a lot that could go wrong this year. And in this backdrop, we expect revenue to grow 100%. That kind of speaks to the strength of the fundamentals of this bank. Um, and to that point, what are the key drivers are um, this bank has essentially created a customer cohort over the last several years, which is maturing as we go along. So, uh, And as the customer kind of ages with the bank, just by offering more and more products and just by increasing ticket sizes, their average revenue contribution to the bank goes up. So this is pure unit economics, like that kind of takes them from like a relatively lower, like $3 per customer to like a $15 per customer kind of a average revenue. So that's one. Uh, the second thing is obviously I think the customer base itself will keep growing because they're expanding into Mexico and Colombia. And by the way, this is already the largest credit cards issuer in Mexico. It's hardly been like, it's it's been less than two years in the market. So, so there is geographic expansion, and then uh, just by launching new products, like their only their offerings are very sparse right now. They only do credit cards and personal loans on the side, on the in any meaningful size. So, right. as they offer other products, that will lead to that as well. 
company went public via IPO in December of last year at $9 a share. Stock's trading below 8 Is this just a – is the stock traded below its IPO price simply reflecting the higher interest rates that you were talking about? Yeah. I mean, if you just look at the fintech stocks in general, like there's been a bloodbath, right? Like okay. uh, pretty much most of the stocks are down. And actually, if you look at New Bank's performance, it's held up reasonably well in a very tough market from that perspective. All right, Diksha, good stuff there. New Bank, NU is the symbol. Diksha Guerra, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financials Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.